Okay, as in go. Sorry, one second. Fork Tales, a podcast that feeds the food and beverage world. Oh, awesome. Tales is brought to you by Vigor, a branding and marketing agency for passion-driven, innovative restaurant, beverage, and hospitality brands. Learn more at VigorBranding.com. If you love what we're serving up, please give Forktails a five-star review on your podcast service of choice. Think of it as a tip for good service. Hey everyone, today I'm joined by my friend Lauren Fernandez. She is the CEO and founder of Full Course, which we are going to unfurl fully in this episode. Lauren, why don't we start by you saying hello and giving a little bit of backstory. Yeah, hi, I'm Lauren, former attorney turned restaurant owner turned restaurant investor and developer. And I started Full Course a little over two years ago. It's been about a 10-year dream of mine to work with early stage restaurant brands and they're really in their emerging years um, when they're anywhere between one and five years old and somewhere between one and five units. And that is exactly what Full Course does. So we are a full service solution for early stage, fast, casual restaurant concepts. You can be anywhere from one to 10 units. We'd love to talk to you. We have a private equity fund that we use to back our investment in these brands. But we're a little bit different in our approach. We take a minority investment stake. We leave our restaurant partners in charge of operations and in control of the business while we focus on deploying the capital to our growth plan that we develop with you with our development team. So we invest in folks for about five years, and it's a pretty different and unique approach but we felt it was necessary to meet the needs in the marketplace to help these independent restaurants achieve a level of growth that really has significant financial return attached to it. We also have a very special focus on businesses that are started and run by women, minorities, and immigrants. We believe at full course that there's plenty of room at the table for all faces and flavors that more I think accurately reflect the true culture and diversity in our country. I love that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So there, there's a lot to unpack there and I think we're going to have fun (laughs) diving into it. Um, but let's start with you. You started your career as an attorney, you forayed into the restaurant industry first as a counsel, but then Mm -hmm. a multi-unit franchisee. How, how was that transition and what made it rewarding? What made it challenging? Yeah, so I did. I, I'm, I'm an Emory JD MBA. I've been in Atlanta for 20 years now, which is kind of crazy to think about. And my journey as counsel started primarily in product development commercialization. So I was an intellectual property attorney for many years. And that path landed me at Focus Brands, where I was recruited to assist in the development of their licensing program leveraging their existing brands onto a number of different B2B and B2C licensed products. So that would be things like Cinnabon on Airwick or vodka, but also on the breakfast menu at Taco Bell or Burger King, right? Um, And that time there was fantastic. I also ran their legal department and franchise administration. And I am a very entrepreneurial and business-minded person, not just as counsel, but just as a human being. And one of the things that I saw regularly that fascinated me was seeing the unit-level economics at play in mass with multi-unit ownership. 
and seeing how profitable those rails of franchising can be for an entrepreneur who's new to restaurants or is looking to grow and scale their own enterprise. And so when I left Focus Brands, I had an interesting choice to make. I knew that I wanted to stay in restaurants and franchising, but I was pretty sure I needed to leave my role as counsel. And it had been something I'd been planning on doing for a long time anyway and segueing into entrepreneurship. And I was sitting at a lunch one day with my mentor, friend, and former CEO, Russ Umfenhauer, and he said to me, why aren't you just putting your money where your mouth is, buy a restaurant franchise? Here are a couple I think might be good for you. And I was like, oh my gosh, obviously, right? Like if you're going to really believe in franchising, maybe you should do it yourself. (laughs) So um, off I went. And um, the short version is investigated a number of brands eventually ended up with a partner purchasing the development rights to a very large territory for chicken salad chick in the Atlanta, greater Atlanta DMA. It already had three units in it. So we took those over. Um, it also included Athens and Augusta. So pretty much overnight, um, rolled that law, law degree up in a tube, put it in the closet, <laughs> bought a pair of non-slip clogs, got a name tag that said Lauren, and I went to work. And that was what the next three years looked like for me. I turned around three restaurants. I built eight more in a 20-month span. So we had a total of 11. I had three more under construction. And then we developed a catering program, the delivery program, which were both new to the brand, And I had three non-traditional units that we had put in America's Mart here in Atlanta. So we had quite a busy practice, you know, busy business going. We were were um, churning and burning and really enjoying it. And we were um, approached to exit the business at the end of 2018 and ended up selling our units back to the parent company. Mm. And that was a really successful transaction for both me and my partners. And I had an opportunity to pause and really have a deep thought about ways we could help the industry be better. And that was really when this idea of putting equity behind the initiatives at full course really became cemented for me. So I incubated it up here and with dialogue with friends and trusted advisors for about a year. um, And we launched it officially in 2020. That's amazing. So a lot of times um, what I've seen personally is I've seen people move from um, corporate at varying levels uh, mm-hmm. from mid, mid-level management the whole way up to absolute rock stars. Uh, there, there's always seemed to be this allure with restaurants, um, this uh, almost like sirens calling to mm-hmm. the uh, ship to uh, come to the <laughs> island. And, um, <laughs> and what I've seen is there's a lot of times there's a lot of money dumped. There's a lot of money invested. There's a lot of money lost. There's a lot of heartbreak and it doesn't last very long. And, and I think a lot of ways, um, not a lot of folks realize just how much work it really is. However, for you, becoming a franchisee was not that step backward. And in, in, in fact, you actually thrived there, like you said. Mm-hmm. So you created a development group to grow that footprint mm-hmm. um, amongst all those other accolades. What were some of the key takeaways and learnings from that experience that maybe you would tell uh, a corporate executive, either in or ancillary to the restaurant industry, who may be thinking about taking that leap? Yeah. What a great question. Okay. I'd say first and foremost, you have to let go of the ego that is tied to the answer to the question that you get at a cocktail party or a networking event, which is what do you do? And I think a lot of us, especially if we have professional degrees, 
where we spent time and money really developing that level of expertise, especially true for me as an attorney. It's just so much easier to say, oh, I'm an attorney or I'm a food and beverage attorney. Oh, I'm a franchise attorney, right? It Mm -hmm. just answers the question and you're done. And, you know, I think there's, as a point of pride, that was a really big deal for me. I came from, I come from an immigrant family where education is very highly prized and valued. So it was a very difficult thing for me to tell my dad (laughs) and my family that I was going to go buy and run restaurants. My dad was like, what are you talking about? (laughs) And I had to explain to him why it was an enterprise, why I was building my own business and how that it was going to play out. And he was like, oh, okay. that can happen, I can always go back to the law, right? And so I think for someone who's willing to jump from that W-2 to an entrepreneurial venture, the first thing I'll say is let go of all of the constructs of the title and the kind of like corporate accolades that come with those structured environments and lean into the humility it takes to learn as if you know nothing And I will tell you in the first meeting I had with our general managers after we bought the business and I introduced them to myself, I walked in in the clothing I wore to closing. So I was in almost like picture me in like corporate Barbie gear, you know, like full on suit and ready to go. (laughs) And I walked into the restaurant and they must have been like, oh my God, who is this chick? And I sat down with them and I said, look, I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to learn more from you guys then you're going to learn from me at first. And I'm going to ask a lot of questions and you're going to tell me all the things I don't know. And I'm going to be like a sponge and I'm going to say this to you, but I'm going to show it to you. And that's how we're going to do. And eventually we will learn from each other. But at first I need you to teach me everything you know about this business. And indeed over that three-year period, I learned so much about restaurants, about development, about what to do, how to motivate managers, how to manage recruitment and retention and employees from being in the trenches. And I think that's such an informative and formative experience to treat that kind of on-the-job training as important as it was for me to get my graduate degrees. Do you, do you know what I mean? Like yep. It was just, and ha- that all starts kind of with a humility. So that is kind of my biggest piece of advice. I think, you know, the other thing too is be financially prepared. It's a very different animal to switch to 1099 and running your own business. And, you know, you need to make sure you don't carry that stress of your family's financial stability with you. So if you can figure out kind of, how to make sure that that stays afloat while you're focused on the business. I think that that's really important. So some really good financial planning for your leap into entrepreneurship is a really good idea if you can. I love that. Yeah. That, that H word is a big one. Humility. Um, for all the reasons that you just said, but even deeper, I find like the, the solve, or at least the beginning of a solve to a lot of problems, mm-hmm. operationally, marketing, whatever department you're in starts with uh, humility. It starts mm-hmm. with listen. And a good example of that is we've all had that job. I think when we were younger, um, it's probably at a restaurant where, you know, you walk in and it's your first day or your first week, or maybe mm-hmm. first month. And you're learning underneath that, that person that's been there for a minute. And the, the scenario goes something like this, where the person's like, okay, so here's how we do this thing. This is the way you're supposed to do it, but here's how I really do it. 
you know? And what I find is like, there's a lot of training people out there and operations people that cringe. I'm sure when they hear that, but I would, I would venture to guess that a lot of times that this is how I do it. Mm-hmm manifested because it was more effective. It was Mm -hmm. easier. Uh, and it was a shortcut, not that it removed quality. It just made it better, faster, and easier to replicate. Oh yeah. If you have humility to listen, you can actually alter systems while simultaneously, uh, showing that these folks are heard, even though they may be seen as lower on the totem pole, as it were, mm-hmm. they're actually heard and they actually had a great solution and given the accolades and that could probably lead to some better retention numbers. Oh my God. Um, One of my favorite restaurant hacks is you walk in and you just watch, just watch what the managers do. Like we all know how to do it by the book, but I love looking around really great managers are proactive at putting systems in place that there may be a gap, or maybe you didn't explain it as well as you thought you did. And so I would always look around the restaurant and, you know, we've, you know, almost a dozen units, they're all run a little differently, even if there's a playbook. And I would look for the little notes on post-its or with a Sharpie or, you know, whatever that the manager would put up for their team. And almost 90% of the time, it was a good idea that needed to be documented and incorporated to our processes and put into a really nice, beautiful, graphically illustrated poster in two languages that we could push out to all of our units. Mm -hmm. And we had this happen one time where we had a, you know, a manual and it had, oh, here are all your weekly cleanings. And in week one, you clean air vents. And in week two, you clean the ice machine. And, you know, it became a list. And when you're a manager and you're super busy, it just gets thrown to the side, right? You're just trying to tread water and keep your head above. (laughs) Yeah. So one of our managers had this really great idea of putting it into a monthly calendar, So there was just a chore and cleaning calendar. So before the end of night shift could clock out, if you had time to lean, you had time to clean. You would go over to the calendar and someone would check off a small task every day of the month on a 30-day calendar. And that was just such a novel and great idea. And what a simple way to illustrate how to keep up with the cleanliness of the restaurant And we took that sucker and we made it beautiful and we put it out as a poster in all of our units. And I think that's just, you know, the best ideas come from doing, especially in the world of restaurants. And so to me, it will always be a hallmark of our investment strategy that we provide not only education, coaching, and leadership development to our clients and to our investment targets, um, but that that comes from a very informed place where our team is all former operators as well as industry experts and executives. Like we really have walked both paths. I love that. Yeah. I think the, the time to lean time to clean thing is, uh, <laughs> one of my favorites. Um, but one of the, so let's just talk about a pet peeve real quick. One of my biggest pet peeves is, and you can tell how well the location is managed. If you just look up at the vents. Um, and I don't know how many times I've looked up at the vents and I actually, I'm like, guys, that's so gross. Mm-hmm. Like that stuff is entering into the air. It's getting in the food. It's getting in people's lungs. And it's really not that difficult at the end of the shift. Just get up there and use a vacuum cleaner and just get all of the dust off of it. 
Right. Or just um, standing and regular maintenance and just schedule it, whether that's done internally by the team or externally by a vendor. And, you know, quite frankly, I think a lot of restaurants need an annual deep clean as well, which are not cheap. They can run anywhere from a thousand to two thousand dollars, but I think it's definitely worth it. And then as soon as that deep clean is done, come in and do a cosmetic kind of touch up on everything, paint and trim and just making sure it looks nice because we eat with our eyes first. And so when you walk in a restaurant and it looks like it's in disrepair, even if it's just as simple as someone pushing a mop on the floor constantly is bumping the handle up against the wall and it creates a scratch. That matters. Those details matter. They show a level of care and concern about the environment and the way that you are creating that experience for a customer. So I, I really believe in spending the money and the time on making sure that the environment is pristine or as pristine as possible. I think the other thing to understand is restaurants do, especially in our fast casual segment, a tremendous amount of volume, hundreds of tickets a day, thousands of dollars, and that just creates a lot of wear and tear on things. And so you have to be willing as an owner to constantly be repairing and replacing. And I mean, I can't tell you how many phones we would burn through because they would be cordless and they'd hit the floor. Someone would be like this talking on the phone while they were trying to do something else and it would hit the floor. And we were constantly kind of in search of these like better phones that we couldn't break all the time. <laughs> and, you know, it's just kind of just one example, right? You just kind if of... the people from OtterBox are listening. <laughs> right. We, like, we... <laughs> build me a better restaurant. You know, I think in some environments you can use headsets and things, but in, in a fast yeah. casual environment, that's not really... It's That's more of a QSR, quick service thing, so... <laughs> Yeah. And so I don't know if you're uh, fully prepared to answer this. It's kind of a a ringer, but it's just, it makes a lot of sense. I think when we start to look at like restaurant design, Mm. as we're talking about the disrepair, Mm. there's a lot of things that can be done and should be done early on with that in in, in mind. But I I fear that a lot of uh, architects, interior designers, Mm. uh, leaders, they they just get so hung up on the aesthetic that they don't really think about that. A good example is um, a friend of mine, Chris Smith from uh, Zunzi's, uh, was kind enough to share this anecdote. Um, when he was a, uh, a Five Guys franchisee, he's like, he started measuring the amount of time it took at the end of almost every mm-hmm. shift to have a little touch-up bottle and repaint all of the nicks on the red chairs that were the original spec. Um, and it actually adds up and, mm-hmm. and it's pretty bad. But counter to that, because that was probably a decision made maybe economically, but also aesthetically, mm-hmm. There's also the cheap route. So we worked with a, a, a team and, and the, the gentleman who's now retired, dead set on vinyl everything. Mm-hmm. It's like, just get it vinyl, vinyl print it, throw it on the wall. That was his solution. And it's like cheap, it fades, it starts to look bad, mm-hmm. and then you have to replace. Yeah. And it just looks cheap anyway. But um, how do you go about, do you get into those conversations yes. with clients at full course? Okay. Yeah. How do you approach that? Yeah. So first and foremost, when we invest in restaurants, we have our own designers that we use and they are all folks that we've worked with who understand my mission on this. So anything that we use in the restaurants has to be highly durable, usually with an outdoor quality finish. And we often do not order custom 
Um, you can customize certain types of furniture and fixtures, but generally speaking, adds an additional expense. So if you can spend a little more time and energy making sure the holistically that the design feels custom and speaks to the brand's story, purpose, mission, you're good. You're golden, right? You don't need to necessarily pay an extra $300 to have the lamps powder coated in the exact right color of blue, right? Like maybe they could just be white or black and you put the blue somewhere else that you can do with paint. So I I think we're very attuned to efficient spend when we're building out these units, because first of all, when they're company stores, you're looking for durability of finish. You're testing these things, right? You're making sure that they're they're with accessible products, that they're not going to go out of inventory, that you can get them quickly. You know, I think durability is very important. So you're looking at efficient spend, durability, and, you know, is it communicating the brand purpose? Look, you know, at the end of the day, you also have to think about it you're going to franchise this thing. You need to think about it's a franchisee's dollars at some point. It's nickels and pennies that they've scraped together to make this business a reality. And you have to be mindful of that spend. I think one of the things that just makes me absolutely cringe is when you see these builds on franchise models for quick service or fast casual go north of a million dollars. And I understand that sometimes that needs to happen, you know, when it's a dirt up build, when there's a drive through involved and there are reasons that that happens, but do you need granite on the countertop? I don't think so. I just don't think so. I'm going to challenge that. I I think you can do a really beautiful laminate countertop that gets you there, you know? So, you know, I think being very thoughtful about the furnitures, the fixtures, and the equipment from the very beginning are absolutely critical. And it's where a lot of franchisors, frankly, make a mistake. Um, They'll outsource that, and sometimes they'll even outsource it to the vendor, the very vendor who's supplying the FF&E. Mm. Now, you tell me, is that vendor going to be selling you top-of-the-line everything? Yeah, because they're incentivized to. Or are they going to be looking for the most economical and efficient choice for your franchisees? So, yes, you better believe that we spend a lot of time and energy designing these restaurants so that they communicate the values of the brand, but in an efficient and effective manner. Yeah, I love that. It's uh, it's funny. Sometimes the the easy path that's taken is rarely the good one. But counterintuitively, or not counterintuitively, but in, in that same vein, if you want to find a way to save money, talk to your franchisees. Right, oh, yeah. they will find a way um, <laughs> to find oh, comparable yeah. finishes. Oh yeah, uh, for so, better or for worse. <laughs> yeah, even when it comes to repairing certain things. So we had all these booths in our restaurants at one point that started to sag and they weren't built with the proper springs or foam. And, you know, when we went to go price replacements, it was like ten, fifteen thousand dollars to get new booths. And they yeah. were just a standard black booth. So immediately we started figuring out, okay, can we can we find a standard issue black booth somewhere else? Or should we repair the ones we have? And we found a local vinyl guy who was like, listen, I can re-engineer these and I can do X, Y, and Z. And for $4,000, I can redo all of these booths and you won't call me again for six years. And we're like, we're in, (laughs) let's do it. So sometimes the answer is finding something stock. Sometimes it's like finding a solution from another franchisee. And sometimes it's going to local vendors where you're like, can you help me? Here's my problem. Cause that guy had been doing vinyl for 30 years and knew what he was doing, you know? And knew immediately that that the original boosts we had bought were not engineered for the type of repeated use that we were putting on them every day, right? So helped us fix it and in a much more cost-efficient way. 
Yeah, I think the, the the nightmare list is is long and ever growing with the uh, poor selections that have been made from the interiors, uh, as well as even from the brand the mm-hmm. whole way down. Um, like you said, like a lot of these places are bootstrapped. They started, they they found a spark, mm-hmm. they then grow, but they haven't really considered these things. Um, but you mentioned the investment and the ongoing investment. I do want to hop into that. So, what does restaurant investment look like? In this current economic environment, at the time mm-hmm. of this recording, we just found out we're in 9.1% inflation. We're mm-hmm. probably in the throes of recession already. Mm-hmm. How does this look compared to 10 years ago? What's better? What's worse? And, and where are we going at this point? Yeah. So, you know, what's really interesting is one of our strategies at Full Course for staying in the lane of fast casual is that it's fairly recession proof. And what happens is consumer behavior in an inflationary process changes a little bit, right? You don't stop going out to eat. You just trade down and maybe instead of eating at a finer dining establishment for lunch, you'll trade down into fast casual. Um, you may not order the drink at lunch or the dessert, right? So there's a lot of ways to hedge against it within the fast casual kind of lane. Um, I think personally that fast casuals got a lot more flexibility in that type of execution. You can dial back your labor by dialing back on the service level. You can bundle and kind of create value without discounting or couponing like sometimes you see in quick service, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I don't see a ton of change with our investor pool and our prospective investors with their with respect to their interest in investing in the category. I think most sophisticated investors understand that food is here to stay. The population is growing year over year. And indeed, if you look back to the period of 2006 to 2009 and everything that was going on in that time, fast casual was, quote, flat in its year over year growth even at 3%. So it's growing as a segment um, just because of the sheer growth of our population and the fact that people don't stop eating out. Even during the pandemic, we didn't. We were ordering in like crazy, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's an important thing to remember. You know, I think secondly, um, people will cut spending in a lot of places, Joseph, but food isn't one of them because we all need that moment of community. We need that moment to go out and get a break from being at home, especially if you're working at home like we do. Right. Um, and you need those opportunities to connect not just you know to other people, but culturally with the opportunities to try food from all over the place. It's a way to kind of travel without traveling sometimes. And I think that that's here to stay. So, you know, honestly, if anything, it's slightly improved our ability to raise capital in this environment. I know that that sounds crazy, but it's because what we're doing has such enormous upside, not just for the clients that we invest in and develop, but for our investors as well. I love that. Yeah, it's... um... Yeah, you know, I'm seeing the the good and the bad happen right now as mm-hmm. the effects of cost of goods uh, therefore affect pricing, behavioral changes, how how much people are eating out in full service restaurants versus quick serve. Um, what are some of the components that you're looking for in a restaurant concept before you invest? Before full course takes action. Right. Great question. So we run all of our clients or prospective clients through an initial assessment. 
and we evaluate some pretty quantitative measures for the business that run from financial to the folks they have on their team, their people organization, their marketing strategies, their points of differentiation, et cetera, right? We're really looking for operational viability and we're looking for opportunities where we can add value by improving on their best practices, making some recommendations on profitability and efficiency, et cetera. But really I'll submit to you that the most important thing are the qualitative things that we look for. Mm -hmm. And our model is so dependent on that collaboration between full course and the development team and the investors and our owner operators who run the business on a daily basis that, you know, working with an owner operator who's willing to grow and genuinely wants to stretch the brand in those directions is sort of number one. I think we're looking for people who have the current or the future potential to be a strong brand leader and that we can foster and nurture that through our education, our coaching, our mentorship, and our leadership development program. And I think we're looking for that humility again. Mm -hmm. We've all been there and we understand. We have a high level of empathy for all of our clients. But we're also looking for that humility where they're willing to take our advice, they're willing to be collaborative, and they're willing to learn and to stretch themselves. And I would I would say this, you could have the best numbers on the planet, and you would not be selected as a target for investment in full course unless you have those things. I love that. Yeah, it's it's so important to be that discerning. I mean, we, we've all run into restaurateurs that uh, know everything, right. which is such a blessing to... Uh, meet them to, <laughs> to have that font and wealth of knowledge and be infallible. Um, <laughs> well, I, so, I'll say this, Joseph, if you know everything, you don't need us. That's our that's right. value add. You can go get capital somewhere else where full course differentiates itself as we take a minority position. We respect owners. We leave them in control of the business. It is a collaborative effort. And so much of that is us growing together. And that includes having an acceptance that that's what life is about, right? Right. We're here every day learning something new. And that's just, I think, a personal and professional philosophy. So we need that kind of alignment for it to work. And if not, I'd be happy to refer you to another investment firm. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. There's plenty of them out there. (laughs) God knows. (laughs) Yes, there are. I love that. So this, this is where I ask you to kind of look into the proverbial crystal ball. Mm -hmm. Um, what do, what do you think is on the horizon for restaurant brands and sustained growth? Um, what what are some of the challenge? How, how do we overcome some of these challenges uh, that we just mentioned previously? And uh, yeah, what do you think is coming? Yeah. So what I think we will see is cementing of a lot of these lessons we learned during the pandemic, being better to our people in the way that we treat them. So not just how we recruit them, but how we retain them with meaningful careers, meaningful benefits, and, you know, really good on the job training. Um, And that's a reciprocal, that's a give and take. So I think number one, we will see more investment in people and long-term careers in the industry. And I, and I say that optimistically and hopefully as much as I, (laughs) I think we desperately need that. Um, I think number two, um, the pandemic accelerated an openness and willingness for restaurateurs, especially in finer dining to explore alternative revenue streams for the restaurant. And this is actually something near and dear to my heart. 
which is when I first conceived of the idea for full course, initially I thought, well, this is a no brainer. Every restaurant should have a product line. Every restaurant should have branded goods in the marketplace. It just makes sense. And you know, that to me was bolt on revenue for the restaurant. And now indeed the full course approach to investment has four separate revenue channels for every brand that we develop. And that's very important to the financial stability of the restaurant brand and its ability to bootstrap and grow out of its own revenue streams in the future, not to mention just you know, good business, right? So, you know, I think that we're going to see more of that as a lot of restaurateurs during the pandemic got comfortable with catering, off-premise sales, pop-ups, um, you know, cottage industry po- uh, product lines that they were pushing out the front door of the restaurant, right? So I think we're going to see more of that. Um, I also optimistically am going to put out there that I think we're going to see a lot more diversity in the brands that we're bringing forward. So historically, private equity investments in the restaurant industry have supported the foods that we all are used to seeing, pizzas, burgers, tacos, more ice cream, you know, more donuts, et cetera. And there is nothing wrong with that. I love all of those food groups. Um, don't we all? Yeah. Um, yep. But I think that if you really look at it, there's been a recent trend in the last few years to embrace foods that come from different regions and cultures of the United States and indeed around the world, whether that's ramen or poke bowls or what have you. And Mm -hmm. I think and I hope that we'll see more of that. Um, I saw, for example, just this last year, the most popularly searched food on Instagram was Indian food. And Mm. I love that. I think we're you know, all the ordering in we did over the pandemic, maybe we got a little bored and we're willing to embrace some concepts that have more cultural variability and represent what this country really looks like. And frankly, that's one of the reasons at Full Course, we make a point to invest in those brands that truly represent that type of cultural diversity. So I hope we see more of that. I'm very optimistic, but I'm also part of that change. That's a little self-serving of a comment. (laughs) No, I love it too. I mean, I think, you know, the, the, the food that we eat, like you said, our staples here in the, uh, what I'll call the American diet, mm-hmm. um, they're, they're delicious. Um, mm-hmm. but I, I think, you know, even in the book that I wrote, I'm like, we don't need another burrito. Mm-hmm. Like I, I got a burrito. I know where I'm going to get my burrito. You know, I, I don't need another hamburger place mm-hmm. and no, yours is not better. Um, you know, what we need is something fresh. We need something, uh, that is, I don't want to say pioneering, but that is bringing something different to market. So yes, maybe, maybe it is a hamburger, maybe, but maybe it's an Indian inspired hamburger or something, just new flavors. And we have a a youthful, um, the the next generations are very well traveled culinarily speaking. Yes. And there's a lot more acceptance and variety of culinary, let's say culinary exploration by nature of the fact that we have all of these TV programs now. You know, when Anthony Bourdain started his many TV series, that was kind of revolutionary. I mean, you know, Julia Childs was revolutionary in putting food on television. So we've come a long way from how to cook a chicken (laughs) all the way Mm -hmm. through to going around the world with an Anthony Bourdain styled host to teach us about culinary points of view from all around the world. And I think there's so many opportunities to bridge cultures and cultural divides with food. You know, um, 
Chef JJ up in New York has a great restaurant called Field Trip. And it's kind mm. of based on this premise is every culture in the world has a rice-based bowl or some type of rice-based food. And yep. we can embrace how so many cultures have some kind of protein wrapped in a type of flatbread. There's so much similarity and that can be a wonderful view into other cultures to help children and everyone understand that we're not as different as you may think, right? The flavor profiles may shift a little bit based on where you are in the world and what's available to you for spices and seasonings and fruits and vegetables. But at its core, our cultures are not that different when it comes to food. So food can be a great bridge, just a wonderful bridge. Well, there's nothing nothing better than just coming together at the table. I mean, everyone makes fun of uh, the Thanksgiving arguments with family, but um, I really do think that dining together is a way to disarm any argument. You know, isn't just, it? If not for any other that, reason, but you got something in your mouth, so you can't say something stupid. That right? was always <laughs> one of my favorite hacks. So I will let you in on a little lawyer secret: is whenever there was a tough negotiation, even if it was you know everyone was on the same page about getting a deal done bumping those meetings up against lunch where there was a necessary break for food was always a win because it's amazing what happens when you get people around food on a table, isn't it? I mean, it is. It's beautiful. It's something, I think it's something innately human too. It's Mm -hmm. it's, it's really good. Mm -hmm. Um, well, I mean, this is a great segue to the toughest question of the entire (laughs) uh, interview, which is if you had one final meal, where would you eat? What would you eat and why? Oh my goodness. Okay. And it could be homemade too. Like uh, my mine's homemade. It's not even at a restaurant. Um, so I think one of my most life-changing experiences was the first time I ever had an authentic paella in Spain, in Northern Spain, where a part of my family is from with fresh seafood. And I was a teenager And I had never really eaten mussels before or shrimp with a head on it, you know, (laughs) or octopus. And I remember them coming out to the table and everyone's used to eating it in the giant paella pans. But in this particular restaurant, they actually unplated it from the paella pan and put it into these huge heaps on the table for people to serve out almost like we do with low country boils here in the U S it was just so. And so that experience of really connecting to my roots and having a version of paella where when I'm at home, like we do chicken, it's kid friendly, it's easy, right? Like, you know, it's, it's less scary for people. I, I do it both ways, but generally we use chicken a lot, right? Maybe some shrimp. I would definitely go back to that moment where you're having the local infused version of a food like that, that is so essential to my culture as a Cuban American, but also to my history and origin story of our Cuban family is from Northern Spain. And that that's, I think that's, that's, that's what I would go out on. <laughs> I think so. I love it. Yeah. That's amazing. Well, this is this has been so insightful. I, I feel like we should probably do another episode very I'm in. soon. There's so much to talk about. I'm um, in. Thank you so much for making the time, making this of happen. Course. And um, yeah, we'll talk to you real soon. Thank you so much for having me. It was an absolute pleasure. Let's do it again.
If you love what we've served up, please follow us at Vigor Branding on Instagram, LinkedIn, YouTube, and Medium. Fork Tales is produced by the team at Vigor. Audio and video post-productions provided by Zencaster. Music performed by Jet Trash and licensed through musicbed.com. Joseph handles his own hair, makeup, and stunts. Copyright 2003 to 2021, Vigor Graphic Design, LLC, all rights reserved.